Today's Bible reading is from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, which you can find on page 474 of the Blue Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, please take the Blue Bible home, and um, may that be our gift to you, that you would have the words of salvation free, for free. From verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's be honest. Everyone judges. Uh, More specifically, everyone, everyone, Judges other people. You cannot avoid judging. Without judging other people, you would walk into the most dangerous place with the most dangerous people and have no idea the danger that you're in. Without judging, you would never tell other people or even your own children when they've done a good job. Without judging, uh, discipline of any kind would not exist, whether in the family, in society, uh, in school, or in church. So how, then, are we supposed to obey Jesus' command to judge not? I hope we get to the bottom of that this morning as we explore this passage. And we shall do so through uh, four instructions that are in the text. Firstly, judge not. Secondly, judge yourself. Thirdly, judge one another. And fourthly, exercise judgment. By my judgment, those are the four key things Jesus tells us to do. So let's begin with the most notorious of them all. Judge not. Judge not. This is a bit laggy, Brayden. There it is. Judge not. Kids, uh, have you ever seen uh, a judge in a court or or a picture of one or one in a show or, or a book or something? You ever seen that? Yeah? What does he look like usually? Grumpy? Your dad's on his way to becoming one, right? He's, he's usually the guy with the funny wig and, and what's called the gavel. Me? What? I'm like, oh, yeah, the picture. Uh, in joke, feel free to ask Elijah about that one later. And he's got the gavel, you know, that little hammer thing that he whacks and he says, you know, court adjourned or guilty or whatever. I mean, that usually just happens in the movies, uh, in American movies. There you go. That's not, a, not really how it works in Australian things. Anyway, that, that is a judge, and he's, his role in the court is to pronounce whether somebody is innocent or guilty. 
Now, a well-known author named Leo Tolstoy believed that this verse, Matthew 7 verse 1, uh, had to be talking about law courts. His view uh, was that Jesus was saying courts and judges should not exist. He said there's, there's no other way to read this text. That must be what he's talking about. Now, the problem with this is that Jesus isn't anywhere in the context of this verse talking about law courts and judges. Uh, so there's, there's nothing in the context to indicate that Jesus is now suddenly saying something about the way we are to organize society. And the Bible also has other things to say about courts of law. But I, I point that out to you and, and to bring that up because it is, it, it, the image itself is important. The Bible tells us that there is one judge, one who will judge all people and all nations. He will pronounce judgment on the wicked. He will uh, save the righteous. And we read about him in Psalm 7 at the beginning of our gathering this morning. Uh, kids, who am I talking about? Who is this one great judge? Jesus, God. Yes, God. So when we read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, we immediately think, in that second half, that you be not judged. Well, who is the one that will be judging me? Well, the first thing worth noting in this instruction, in what Jesus says here in verse 1, is that we stand before God as the great judge. We are not to seat ourselves on his judgment seat. That is for him and him alone. Now, sometimes when this verse is used to defend someone's actions, perhaps you've heard them pull it out. They'll say, no, no, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Don't tell me what to do. Only God can judge me. And you know what? They're right. That's true. When the day of the Lord comes and Jesus judges all people in righteousness, he is the one who will be judging. I or any other person will not be the one responsible for either welcoming you into his kingdom or casting you out of his kingdom. God alone will do that for all of us. So none of us should ever approach any other person with that kind of attitude. That should humble us in any judgment that we make about others. Because we are not God. But there's more to it, isn't there? There's more to what Jesus is saying. Because, I mean, that's kind of an obvious point, isn't it? Of course we don't judge the way God does. That none of us are God. God himself is the only one who is God. And we are not. Jesus is saying more than just that. Do not judge that you be not judged. Now, this is a verse that is used often by Christians and non-Christians. It usually doesn't take long on social media or uh, in the news and, and the opinion sections or in conversation for somebody to bring it up. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever seen that? You know, so usually somebody will say something uh, a Christian might make a, a comment about what is right or what is wrong, and the immediate response is this verse, judge not that you be not judged. And why is it usually brought up? Why is it this the verse that people usually bring up when that happens? Well, you see, normally, 
at least as far as I can tell, it is when uh, a Christian will say that something is wrong, morally wrong. And then the person, because they disagree with that, they don't think that that, that is morally wrong. They will try and turn that back on the Christian and say, well, look at this verse. You're not supposed to judge. You don't have the authority to say what is right and what is wrong. And when this happens, Matthew 7.1 is used basically as a defense to tell Christians what they should be like, what it usually means, and, and, and them saying, no, don't judge. You don't have that authority. You're not allowed to do that. Is that how we're to understand Jesus' words? Well, as is often pointed out, that, that is a terrible misuse of this verse. I'm pretty sure I've pointed that out in previous sermons. It rips the verse right out of its context. But before we get to that, we must recognize that Jesus says this for a reason. You see, I personally am one who is very quick to sort of point out, no, that's not what it means. But even though that is the case, it is nonetheless an instruction that Jesus has given that we must take seriously. Judge not that you be not judged. How are we to be obedient to this command? Well, in order to do so, we need to know what kind of judging Jesus is banning. At the beginning, I talked about the kind of judging that uh, that everyone does, right? That of just simply deciding whether something is right or wrong, whether a person is perhaps doing the right thing or the wrong thing. That's, That's basically evaluation, right, in our minds. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, if so, Jesus would be disobeying his own command. After all, he's about to go on to explain why making such judges is important, judgments is important, and he himself makes those judgments about others. You have to judge a person's actions in order to be able to call them a hypocrite, right? So what kind of judgment are we talking about? Well, have a look at verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. You see, this clues us in to what Jesus is talking about. He isn't laying down a a mathematical law about how God judges us, right? As though uh, we're going to arrive on judgment day and God is going to weigh up all the times that we were really judgmental and all the times we were really merciful and then he's going to give us judgment and mercy depending on how well we did in that. That's not what he's saying in verse 2. No, when, when we stand before God and before his throne, we will either receive judgment that we deserve or the mercy that we don't. Our names will either be written in the Lamb's book of life or they won't be. But if they are written in the book, then it will be because of his mercy, his grace. See, Jesus is using this little proverb to make the point that he makes in other parts of Scripture, that the ones who have been shown mercy by God will be merciful to others, and that those who have been forgiven by God will, be, will forgive others. So to call ourselves Christians and to show no mercy to others or to hold on to unforgiveness is to disobey God and to trample on the very mercy and forgiveness that he has shown to us. In the same way, to judge others, assuming the position of God, 
is to invite his judgment on us. That should get our attention. In the equivalent verse in Luke chapter 6, Jesus puts it like this, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. You see, condemnation is at the heart of the point that Jesus is making here. What verse one, uh, verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 7 capture is the attitude of the Pharisee. This is the person who looks at others without even a second of looking at themselves. This is the person who points out everybody else's flaws without a single look in the mirror. This is the person who loves to condemn others without a single thought about their own sin. If you've read Pride and Prejudice or seen the movie, this is Mr. Darcy, right at the beginning. Everyone else is beneath me. This is the kind of judgmentalism that Jesus bans. Judge not, condemn not, so that you may not be judged. You know, it's interesting to uh, observe this in our world. Uh, These days, uh, rather than uh, saying, don't judge me, you know, even though that verse is often used, uh, more often than not today, what I observe is that everyone is judging everyone. Am I the only one? Do you get that feeling? Right? Increasingly, more and more people are happy to, especially on social media, just, just pronounce who the, who the bad people are in our society and who the, people are, who the virtuous ones are. And increasingly today, the consensus in society is that Christians have got the wrong morality. The things that we say are right are actually wrong. The things that we say are wrong are actually right. So some Christians and some conservative commentators fight fire with fire. Because that's the way the public discourse is going. They do the same thing. They just love to do the same kinds of pronouncements and hurling judgments at other people. And some Christians love these conservative commentators, whether Christian or not. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with with listening to those or learning from critiques of culture like that. But brothers and sisters, we must guard against disobeying Jesus and joining in that kind of judgmentalism. Be careful that you don't pick up an attitude that is against that, that of which our Lord tells us. More often than not, I find when I listen to or read such commentary, it is done from exactly this attitude. There is an arrogance that shows little to no humility. There is a lack of self-examination or willingness to acknowledge their own sins. And it's extremely rare to see in any of this discourse public apologies. Now, I get that they're probably doing that for rhetorical reasons, you know, shock value or trying to get their point across, whatever. But be careful that in your zeal for what is right, 
that you do not lose sight of how you should be fighting for what is right. Because in God's eyes, how you do something is as important as what you do. Jesus will unpack verse 2 in the next few verses. And we must ask ourselves, what is the measure that I use to judge others? What is the measure that I use to judge others? One of the easiest ways for us to identify this in our own lives is to think of how often you apply your own judgments of others to yourself. Oh, that person is so inconsiderate and insensitive. Have you considered how inconsiderate and insensitive you are? Now, he's so proud. Have you thought about how proud you are? Oh, she's always defensive and she never listens to me. Have you considered how often you are defensive and don't listen? Oh, they don't look after their kids properly. Have you considered how you look after your own kids? Jesus is pointing out the fact that when we sinfully condemn others, we use unbalanced weights. Does anyone own a set of analog bathroom scales? Or are you all digital now? Yeah, there's a couple, a couple of nods. I may be a bit too old for this, but so you may not understand. But analog bathroom scales... Uh, they're not digital, they've got a little dial that, so that as you step on it, you know, it kind of moves to show you how heavy you are. And all of them, you, do you know where I'm going with this? You know the little dial at the bottom? You can move it so that, so that it doesn't start on zero, but it starts on a completely different number, right? So you can, you can put it on, you know, plus 20, and then suddenly your weight is plus 20 kilos. Or you can put it below 20, and then suddenly you're less than 20. Well, Jesus is saying that when we put other people and their sin on the scales of our minds, we jack that thing up. We, we add an extra 40, 50 kilos to their sins and to their, uh, the, thing, the, the judgment of them. And when we stand on it, man, we, we bring it right down. I'm at, look at me, I'm light as a feather. No sin here. What measure do you use? Sadly, this happens far too quickly amongst Christians and in churches. Surely we've all been uh, in the position where we're listening to a preacher apply Scripture to our lives and the foremost thought in our minds is, man, I wish so-and-so was here. Or I, I, I really hope that this person is listening. And surprisingly, often, the very thing that we're hoping our Christian brother or sister would hear is the very thing that we need to hear. Now, you can have a good motive behind that thought, right? Because you love them, you care for them, you want them to grow in Christ, of course. But if my heart is anything to go by, sadly, too often those motives are an afterthought. We far more quickly condemn 
That's why it is so important that we hear this first. Judge not. Before we even move on to what good judgment might look like, we must hear this warning. Judge not. As Paul would eventually put it in Romans 14.10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Judge not that you be not judged. If this is so hard, how do we do it? Well, Jesus gives us more help, which brings us to our second instruction. Judge yourself. Have you ever had something stuck in your eye? Yeah, some nods. My guess is most of us, if not all of us, probably have. You know, it is amazing, I think, how much irritation and even pain such a small thing can cause. Uh, it, it could literally be just a speck of dust that you can't even see, but you will definitely feel it, right? The accepted medical advice is that if you get something in your eye, you should remove it as soon as you can in order to avoid further damage. Makes sense. Now, if such a small thing can cause us so much grief, imagine if that speck was millions of times larger. It would be millions times of times more painful, right? But of course, who's ever seen anybody with a log in their eye? Anyone? Kids, have you ever seen someone with a log stuck in their eye? How big's a log? It's huge, right? It's, like, it's, like, it's not even physically possible to get that into your eye. It's ridiculous. Your eye is too small, the log is too big. And that's the point. Let's read from verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? The illustration is just so absurd that you cannot miss what he is saying. How could a person with a log in their eye possibly help someone get a speck out of their own? Not only would the log be getting in the way of their vision, they probably wouldn't be able to reach the other person with their hand. You know, or, or in order to do so, you'd have to turn, so that, and then you wouldn't even be able to see, right? It's, it's a ridiculous image. And kids, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to try and draw a picture of this. And so just from looking at the picture, you'll be able to see how ridiculous it is, right? Well, we, we understand the absurdity of the picture well enough. But do we understand the absurdity of the reality? Jesus is exposing how unevenly the hypocrites weigh others' sins compared to their own. He's making it clear that when we judge others, when, when we do so from a, from a position that, that sees their great sin without even considering our own, that is comically ridiculous. 
And it would be hilarious if it weren't for the fact that it is so sad and sinful. Brothers and sisters, whenever we judge others, have we judged ourselves to an even greater degree? Have we run the microscope over our own hearts first, over and over? Matthew Henry puts it like this, Our sins ought to appear greater to us than the same sins in others. Is that how you feel? When you recognize pride in somebody else or some other sin that you struggle with in somebody else, does it seem worse in them or in you? How often do we get it around the wrong way? We condemn the the lack of grace in others and we give our own lack of grace a free pass. We condemn the the selfishness of others while we wave away our own. Or even worse, we, we don't even take a moment to consider whether that is a sin that is present in our lives. The Christian life is one of ongoing self-reflection. It is one of ongoing discernment of our own hearts, of ongoing uprooting of sin in our lives. That's why the epistles are filled with instructions to put away sin, to put it to death, to turn away from it, to run from it, to flee from it. Jesus is giving us the ratio of self-examination to others' examination. And it could not be clearer. Judgment and correction of ourselves should be much larger than that directed at others. It is log to speck larger. If we don't grieve our own sin more than we readily judge those of others, then we are in hypocrite territory. And in the book of Matthew in particular, Jesus usually reserves the term hypocrite for the Pharisees. Go and check out Matthew chapter 23 to see how severe his rebuke is of them. So what does Jesus say we should do? You hypocrite, take the log out. I mean, that's about as sensible as the medical advice for what you should do with a piece of dust in your eye, right? Just take it out. Now, before I go on, a word to those who are more easily self-condemned. Perhaps you're the kind of person who can't help but, but see your faults. Perhaps you're the kind of person who already grieves your sin. And, and perhaps you do it too much. Maybe you're the kind who, who's more likely to find the log and then start beating yourself up with it. Well, if that is you, then please hear me this morning. This is not a call to self-condemnation. Christian, if you have trusted in Christ then he has freed you from condemnation. Read Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Memorize it. Christ has paid for your sin. You need not pay for it again in your own mind. This is not a call to condemn yourself, but to examine yourself. 
I saw this week a pastor describe it as, by saying that your sin will still bring correction, but it will no longer bring condemnation. And that is what Jesus is calling us to here. Not self-condemnation, but self-correction. A judgment of self for the purpose of becoming more like Christ. And the reality is that all of us, whether prone to self-exaltation or self-condemnation or a lack of self-examination, we are all still at risk of condemning others more harshly than ourselves. I hope the seriousness of Jesus' words here in verse 5 cause us to see the severity of his instruction. Perhaps being judgmental is such an ingrained habit for you that you, know, you barely even recognize that you're doing it. If that is you, or if you are closer to that end, then you must hear what Jesus is saying. Judge not, and judge yourself. If you've become well-practiced in, in noticing others' faults and you find that there is much less time in your mind spent judging yourself, then your first priority should be to flip that time. Remove the log. That's the first step. How unpracticed we are at this. And how hard it is when the world is screaming at us to be more judgmental. If this is a real struggle, then one of the first steps you can take is aim to increase the time of confession in your private prayer. Spend just a few more minutes checking your own heart, asking God to reveal sin there that you are blind to. Brothers and sisters, imagine the witness that we would be to the world if we were known as those who did not speak about others as though we believed ourselves to be better than them. How it would exalt Christ and adorn the gospel if our lives displayed the recognition that I am the chief of sinners, but Christ has shown me grace. Humble, intentional, self-examination is what Jesus is calling us to here. And you can bet that if we live that out, if that is in our hearts, that will obviously show up in our words and in our actions. And God would be glorified. To test your humility in this, maybe try this exercise. Go to a trusted Christian brother or sister who knows you well and ask them, do you think I judge other people's sins more harshly than my own? And perhaps to really test it, ask what sin in my life 
do you think I am easily blind to? That would be a really encouraging conversation, don't you think? Of course not. It would be very heavy, it would be hard, it would be awkward. But your willingness to ask such questions will tell you how serious you are about getting the log out of your own eye. And your response to the answer will tell you something about how much help you need in judging yourself. Now, I'm not suggesting we should do this regularly or even semi-regularly. I hope most of our interactions with each other, as we read about in the rest of Scripture, is, is, are encouraging, are uplifting, that they're not stuck in just fault-finding. But if we're serious about removing the logs out of our own eyes, would this not be a helpful step? And if we did it not to invite condemnation but correction, if we did it out of love for God and love for one another, if we did it with the gospel of grace as our foundation, then I think that would be a huge step towards Christ-likeness in our church. And if we were all better at judging ourselves then judging one another would be much less difficult. And that takes us to our next point. Judge one another. It sounds a bit contradictory, don't you think? Judge not. Judge yourself. Judge one another. Do not place yourself in the place of God. Don't be condemning. Judge yourself far more than you judge others. But now, judge one another. Well, when you've carefully, patiently, humbly, as best as you can, walked through those steps, then and only then, Do we judge one another? What does Jesus say that we can do once the log is out? Look at verse 5. Take the log out, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Uh, I don't know about you, but in the past when I read this passage, I basically ignored the second half of verse 5. At best, I did not know what to do with it, At worst, I thought, uh, that can't mean that. There must be something wrong with that part. How can Jesus say all this stuff about not judging and, you know, judging yourself really carefully and then go on to say that it's still okay to take the speck out of your brother's eye? How does that work? For me, it seemed to go against the grain of the whole passage. But I hope that we've seen how the point Jesus is making does not totally exclude helping others see their sins and take them out. What he does instead is he puts that practice in its proper place. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If you remove a log out of your own eye and your brother still has a speck in theirs, then isn't it the loving thing to do to take it out? 
It's sensible. It would be unloving. Firstly, you'd be disobeying the medical advice. Secondly, it would be unloving because there would be the the opportunity for that to continue to fester, to to, to create further injury. No, that is, it, it is loving to do that. And this is Christian correction. I hope I've made it really clear that this is not meant to be the main body of our interactions with each other and that our own personal examination should be where the majority of judging happens. That is the log. I hope that is clear. But helping each other with specs is nonetheless a part of the Christian life. Let me give us three guides on how we can practice loving correction with our brothers and sisters. Firstly, it's worth recognizing that this is for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why Jesus uses the term brother in this passage, which can also refer to a sister. Now, that's not to say that you can't do this with non-Christians, but Scripture's instructions on correcting others in sin are mostly, if not always, to do with fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5 shows us this most clearly, and that point is made clearest in that chapter in verses 12 to 13. Paul writes, For what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In short, those who have not been saved from sin and still love their sin, they're not going to care about getting rid of their sin. I'm not sure if you've ever tried that. But if you try and point something like that out to somebody who is not a Christian, more often than not, your response is not going to be a friendly one. It will be a rejection. You see, such, those who are not in Christ, they're more, more than happy to live with the logs in their own eyes. Load them up. Might as well be a whole cedar of Lebanon. They don't see them as logs. Just, whatever. Right? But as for the church, we bring correction. Secondly, we seek to correct one another out of love and out of genuine care. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the Galatian church. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Once again, that can refer to brothers and sisters. You notice how Paul here echoes Jesus when he says, keep watch on yourself. But more importantly, notice the heart behind Jesus' instruction. A spirit of what? Gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. You see that? You you only do that with somebody that you love. And the law of Christ that he is referring to is likely Jesus' command that we love one another, as he talks about in John. See, this ought to be the driving motivation in any correction of others that we might have. If there is uh, even the, the, just a hint of wanting to be the one who is over, the one, the one who is being able to make the judgment and, and, and put, put yourself on the moral high ground, then you ought to take a step back, 
devote that in prayer and ask God to assess your own heart so that it may be like this, out of love. Thirdly and finally, we ought to correct humbly, slowly and patiently. I won't read the whole thing, but this is where Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 20 basically lays out the roadmap for how to do this. When seeking to bring uh, to a brother or sister's attention a sin, then you start individually. You approach them yourself. Then you progress to bringing another brother or sister and then eventually bringing it to the church. You notice that process? That is a slow, careful, patient process. It is long. It is not one that is seeking to jump on someone else for their sin at the earliest possible chance. It is hoping, praying, desiring, out of love for that person to turn and to trust in Jesus. No doubt there's much more to say, but I will leave it there for now. And I don't want to say much more about it because I think it's crucial that we get the ratio and the proportions right. This is spec work. And the vast majority of what we do should be log work. Well, there's also one last instruction that Jesus gives us in this section, which brings us to the final point. Exercise judgment. In the first five verses of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' main concern is that we do not judge quickly or that we do not judge without examining ourselves first. But now he shifts to give a warning about not being careful enough in judging others. Let's read verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Kids, do any of you have a pet dog or friends with a pet dog? Anyone? Yep. Do any of you actually own a dog? I don't think anybody does. Oh, sorry, I meant our kids. <laughs> I think even our kids own dogs. Now, those dogs, they're, they're pets, right? So they, they usually are kept clean and, you know, looked after. Well, what about any pet pigs? Have any of you ever have or, or have met anyone with pet pigs? Yeah? Yeah? You have one or you know someone? You don't know someone, right? Yeah, I mean, that's less common, right? But I know that some of you kids have actually seen pet pigs. They're, they're actually, if you've never seen them, they're actually kind of cute. Now, those actually are relatively clean as well for a pig. But dogs in Scripture... More often than not, they are, they are scavengers and they are dirty and, and, and mangy. They, they, they get all the scraps. And not only that, but in Jesus' teaching and in the rest of the New Testament, dogs are seen as those who are enemies of Christ. They are the ones who are outside of Jesus' kingdom people. And pigs, I mean, they're not normally pets, and nor are they usually friendly. And we get wild pigs up here in the territory. For our international guests, uh, you know, if you ever want to do something fun, ask somebody to take you pig hunting. Um, 
None of us go, so you'll have to find somebody else. Uh, as far as I'm aware, anyway, if you do, let me know. Uh, so we get wild pigs up here, and, and I didn't think many of us would want to come across a wild pig uh, in, in the wild, right? They are pretty, they are huge creatures, and they are quite fierce. And there are so many of them uh, in the territory that they are actually a pest to many property owners up here. Uh, and they really do trample. Uh, they leave massive holes in, in fields and uh, people's farms. So if you, if you think about that picture that the Bible paints of dogs and pigs and what they look like, then that gives you an idea of the people that Jesus is talking about. The Apostle Peter even puts both those animals in one verse in his second letter. He says, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, which is a female pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. <clears throat> Peter is talking about false teachers here, and if you read the whole chapter, you'll see that Peter does not mince his words about them at all. It may well be that Peter has in mind this very teaching of Jesus. And what have these dogs and pigs turned on? What were they attacked and trampled? Oh, the kingdom of heaven. What is holy there likely refers to food that was offered in the temple. You, know, you, you would never give such food to dogs, food, food that you had dedicated and, and consecrated to, uh, to sacrifice to the Lord. But given the, the illustrative nature of this verse, it seems that Jesus is, is using that as an image to refer to something else. And the main reason I think Jesus is talking about the kingdom is because Jesus uses a pearl as an illustration for precisely that in his other teachings. Matthew 13, 45 to 46 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is saying that we are not to be naive about those to whom we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. When we proclaim the gospel freely to all people and offer the treasure of the kingdom, the pearl of great value, now it's worth noting that we ought to do that. We ought to be discerning. And Jesus is saying, beware of those who have so rejected God and his gospel that their response to you would be great hostility. Now, now, let me remind us of something I said at the start. Only God judges, right? So none of us can tell just by knowing somebody whether they are, figuratively speaking, a pig or a dog in this sense. So it is our task to ensure that we offer the treasure of heaven to everyone, Whatever their response, Jesus himself in the Great Commission, go to all peoples, all nations. That is our task. We continue to do that. We, we continue to proclaim and to call people to follow Jesus, to, to believe in him, to respond to his gospel. And we follow Jesus in this. He was the one who preached to, who prayed for those who persecuted Judas Iscariot remained one of his disciples right up until the point that he betrayed him. 
This is the default setting. Even if people openly reject the gospel, our hope is that the ongoing exposure to it will soften their hearts to Jesus. You see, our longing is that every person would hear and respond to the gospel to receive the pearl of great value. But there will be times when a person's heart is so hard or it becomes increasingly harder with greater exposure to the gospel that we must begin to consider the wisdom of continually engaging with them. And this is similar to Jesus' instruction to his disciples in Matthew 10 to shake the dust off their feet when towns reject the gospel. Now, that instruction was specifically for them and not for us, but it carries a principle similar to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy, sorry, do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. But what does this mean for us? Do we just give up on people who repeatedly and viciously attack the gospel? Or those who proclaim it? I don't think it means to give up on them. At the very least, we ought to continue to pray, even for those who seem like a lost cause. Because remember, we don't know what God is doing. And if such a person were to, were to actually turn and to start to become interested, genuinely interested again in, in the kingdom, in Jesus, in the gospel as far as we could tell, then of course, of course, we would only too gladly share with them. We wouldn't say, no, your past history has, made, has meant I am never going to talk to you again. But we must be wary of those who are enemies of the kingdom of God and approach such people with discernment. We ought to Think wisely, prayerfully, carefully, in counsel with others. Consider whether it may be time to start engaging less with those who have so openly rejected Christ. Notice the tension between the first five verses and this verse. Judge not, judge yourself, judge one another. But here, exercise judgment. We, we must be quick to judge not. We must be quick to judge ourselves. We must be slow to judge others. But we must also judge wisely when it comes to the enemies of Christ. This is the life of the disciple of Jesus. We recognize that God is the judge, and if he were to judge us without mercy then there would be nothing left for us but the penalty that our sins deserve. Our sins condemn us, and so we cry out for mercy. And because of his grace, he grants it to us. You see, the pearl of great value is entry into the heavenly city by grace through faith in Jesus. And it is of such great value that we would give everything up to attain it. If you are not a Christian here this morning, then I want you to know that the pearl is the greatest treasure that you could ever find in your life. And you receive it by giving up everything to trust in Jesus and to follow him for the rest of your days. 
He went to the cross having lived a life of sinless perfection. And in doing so, he died in our place and received the penalty for our sin on our behalf so that through faith in him, we might receive his righteousness. And in exchange, our sin-tarnished clothes are replaced with a robe of white. As Revelation 22 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is mercy. But for those who refuse to turn away from sin and turn to Jesus, who refuse to give up everything in order to receive the pearl, they will be left outside the gates. As Revelation 22 goes on to say, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is God's righteous judgment. I hope and pray that you would turn from your sin to receive God's mercy today. And brothers and sisters, May this not discourage us from proclaiming the gospel. I hope instead it helps us remember that God is the one who saves and not us. So that if some begin to turn away from him or harden their hearts towards him or they start to become hostile towards us, that we can entrust their fate in his hands. And we can go on telling all people everywhere about the pearl of great value. Church, may we follow Jesus' commands here about how to use better judgment. And in our struggle with this, can I once again urge us to turn our hearts to his gospel? Because you see, when we deeply know that we receive this kingdom through such a wondrous, magnificent display of God's mercy then how could we be anything else but slow to judge others and quick to judge ourselves? Do we not say with Paul, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. When we see that, we will see logs and specks clearly. May the great judge help us judge rightly. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we get extremely comfortable with logs in our own eyes. Lord, may that not be so. In your mercy, 
by your grace, through the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to remove them, to take them out, to not self-condemn, but to self-correct. In order that we might judge rightly, to stand before you in humility, and to in love seek to encourage one another to press on in the love and grace of our Lord Jesus. Father, continue to press deeply into our own hearts the truth and wonder of the gospel that we might live faithfully unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.